All right. Would you pray with me as we ask God to be gracious to us? Lord Jesus, I thank you that we all all are here together once again. I just ask that you will be gracious to each and every person that is here. I ask that your son, Jesus Christ, will be illuminated from your word and also in our hearts and minds. I pray that as we concentrate on today's sermon message, that Jesus will be displayed more beautiful than ever before. So by your spirit, I pray that you would convict us of our sins, help us to surrender ourselves unto you, and help us to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, with our minds, bodies, and souls. In his name I pray. Amen. I failed to have a, a slide up for you um, to help you identify the sermon title. The sermon title is Divine Intervention. That is today's message. Uh, title message, Divine Intervention. Today's passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. As a Christian Missionary Alliance church, we believe in miracles. The CMA has documented several miracles occurring in our times. However, miracles are rare. Despite how much a TV preacher tell you to give you give him or her some money in exchange for a prayer cloth or some holy water, a miracle is not going to happen. Miracles do not happen on a daily basis. A miracle is divine is defined as a divine act that cannot be explained by natural or scientific methods. In other words, a miracle is a divinely intervention by God reaching into reality, reaching into time and space. We obviously see the number one miracle on a daily basis, which is creation. That is a miracle, the very first miracle of the Bible. One of the very last miracles of the Bible is found in Jonah, the book of Jonah, and that was 800 years ago before the birth of Christ. God had caused Jonah to be swallowed by a fish so that Jonah can be where God wanted him to be. The fish washed Jonah on the shores of Nineveh. After that miracle in the life of Jonah, God stopped causing miracles to happen. And he stopped speaking for 400 years between the intertestament period until we reached the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Like I said, I would like for you to turn your attention to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. Uh, we're studying Luke's Gospel expositionally. Expositionally, I'm preaching through this chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That's what positional preaching means. Let me read the text to you as you follow along. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 17, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, 
when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you, will, and you shall call his name John. And you will, be, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke, Luke identifies a Jewish custom in verse 9. Luke writes, Zechariah was chosen to enter into the temple and burn incense. The casting of lots was like rolling dice. If you ever gamble, I'm sure you are familiar with it. They cast lots for every priest to perform different religious duties and religious services in in the temple and outside of the temple. And the lot fell upon Zechariah for the religious duty of burning incense. It was Zechariah's priestly division, the division of Abijah, to serve for only two weeks that year. It was similar to what we do today in terms of church service. We select people to serve as trustees, deacons, and ushers. But we do not cast lots. Uh, We depend on upon the Holy Spirit to prompt you to serve in whatever capacity that is available here at Akron Alliance Fellowship or any other church that you may find yourself serving at. A priest was selected only once for this religious duty to burn incense. There were 24 divisions of priests totaling in 18,000 priests which equals to 750 priests for each division. So the likelihood of Zechariah serving in that religious capacity of burning incense was very slim. Therefore, I am sure Zechariah was thrilled when he was selected to serve because it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. This was not by chance that Zechariah was selected to burn incense. This was not a coincidence. There is no such thing as chances or coincidence. Uh, We use those terms to help us understand the uncertainty or different events that we may not fully understand Everything that we do in our lives was preordained by God, just as it was for God to orchestrate Zechariah for this religious duty. So Zechariah was chosen by Lot. For example, God has preordained everything to the smallest detail in our lives. According to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, Scripture says, The lot is cast from the lamp, lamp, but every decision is from the hand of the Lord. In Psalms chapter 22, verse 18, 
It speaks of Christ's crucifixion by which it it says that the soldiers cast lots for Christ's clothing. Psalms 22 verse 18 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was a thousands of years before the crucifixion of Christ. So we see the same method of casting lots in the book of Acts. The 11 apostle cast lots for Matthias, making him the 12th apostle. Who, to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus. So when they cast lots, the lot fell upon Matthias, making him the 12th apostle of the church. And scripture was fulfilled exactly how God ordained it to be. Please understand that God does not leave anything to chances. From God's perspective, there is no such thing as coincidences. God causes all things to work according to his will. As Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says. Zechariah was there performing his religious service in the temple that Herod the Great built. It was one of the largest temple in Israel history. The height of Herod's temple was at least 20 stories high and as long as a football field or a football stadium. There were five major parts of the temple. There were the Gentiles' courtyard, the women's courtyard, the priestly courtyard, and inside the temple itself was the priest's courtyard in the holy place and holy of holies. The veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Everyone had their respected places in the temple. No, everyone were restricted to where they could have travel in the temple. It has been said that if a Gentile would have traveled beyond the Gentile courtyard, he was to be killed. So normally... Zechariah would have been in the courtyard amongst the other priests sacrificing animals. That was what they were doing. Their normal duties was to sacrifice animals. They were butchers. Zechariah would have been thrilled to enter into the holy place of the temple because it would have been his first time doing so. It was a new experience for him. Inside the temple was the altar of incense, located directly in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where God manifests himself above the ark. He would have appeared in a cloud of glory over the mercy seat, forecasting his lordship in a theocratic society. The high priest alone would have entered the Holy of Holies once a year, once a year, to sacrifice an animal on behalf of Israel. But Zechariah wasn't a high priest. Therefore, he could not enter into the Holy of Holies, but only face the, whole, the veil of the Holy of Holies to perform his religious duty in the temple. Now, Everybody probably like, what does this have to do with anything? So let me simplify just a little bit so that I won't be so technical. I want you to use your imagination. The Holy of Holies was similar to this blue curtain to my left and your right that separates one side of this church building. And Zechariah would have been standing right in front of this blue curtain within the temple. So imagine this 
all, uh, this pulpit was the altar of incense, and this, and this pulpit was right there. That's how Zechariah would have been. And the other side was the Holy of Holies. Just to give you uh, an imagery of how the temple was. As Zechariah performed his religious duty inside the temple, the people were outside the temple praying at the hour of incense. Uh, It could have been the evening hour of incense, which would have uh, probably caused a larger group of people to be there. The hour of incense was, or the altar of incense, was at least three feet tall, eight inches wide. And within that, uh, the altar itself was a golden bowl of coals. And the priests would have burned these coals, releasing a large massive of cloud of a, of a sweet sweet uh, smell within the temple. Why do I say that? Because it symbolized something. It symbolized something that is very important. The burning of incense and praying were synonymous acts of worship. God instructed Aaron, the father of the priesthood, to burn incense in the morning and evening. Symbolizing a sweet fragrance of prayers rising to the nostrils of God. So as you can imagine, Zechariah was inside the temple burning the incense and people were outside of the temple praying. In Psalms chapter 141, verse 2 David said, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and lifting up my hands as an evening sacrifice. This is how God looks upon the prayers of his people. This is how God looks upon our prayers. I have to say, ask this question to apply What I'm saying to you, do you think your prayers is a sweet aroma in God's nostrils? Is it a sweet smell when you pray to him? There's a difference because God looks on the inside of a man, looks upon that person's heart. So he knows when you're genuine or when you're not genuine when you pray to him. The last angel to appear in the Old Testament is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, verse 5. Appearing to Zechariah, the prophet, in the form of a vision. 500 years later, the, first, the very first angel to appear in the New Testament is Zechariah, the priest, in which what we see here in our text. Zechariah the priest, soon to be the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah was there inside the temple, standing in front of the curtain or the veil of the Holy of Holies, burning incense until an angel appeared. He was not seeing a vision. It wasn't some type of apparition or some type of vibration or out-of-body experience. The angel was really there, standing on the right side of the altar. Now, what is the meaning of the right side of the altar? It literally means the right side of the altar. Again, Luke tells us it was there in the temple, the angel appeared to Zechariah on the right side of the altar. Zechariah was Frightful, and rightly so. Luke records within our text that fear fell upon Zechariah. When the angel appeared to Mary, he said to uh, 
he said to Mary, be not afraid. Because she too was stunned at the appearance of the same angel. Now, two years ago, Kirsten and I was celebrating our anniversary at Niagara Falls. It was our first time seeing Niagara Falls. When we arrived there, we walked close, <laughs> close to the balcony of Niagara Falls. We realized we realize the sheer greatness of the falls itself. We were overwhelmed with dreadfulness. Because we, we came to the realization that Niagara Falls had a, has a larger-than-life influence or, or larger-than-life appearance to itself. That's it was larger than ourselves. And I'm sure, likewise, once the angel was standing in front of Zechariah, he knew that the angel was something greater than himself. Reacting to angels in that manner is quite natural. After an angel appeared to uh, Manoah, which is Samson's father, he realized that he was speaking to the angel of the Lord and he said, we shall surely die for we have seen God. When the apostle John saw the glorified Lord in the book of Revelation, John said that when I saw the Lord Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet Dead, according to John chapter, I'm out, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. The principle is that angels is otherly. They're outside of our reality, outside of what we can comprehend. They are supernatural beings, and our minds cannot comprehend the glory that extends from them. Because of our fallen, sinful nature. Likewise, even when you, I believe, when we all stand in the front of God's presence, we still want to comprehend who he is, his very nature. We will still have that greater than life experience or feeling when we stand before the throne of God. If an angelic being appears to us, I'm sure we all will uh, react in the same manner as Zechariah. We all will be afraid. Nevertheless, the angel gave Zechariah comforting words. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers has been heard. He says that in verse 13. Now, pause there. What was Zechariah praying about? What do you think his prayer was? It appears that Zechariah's prayer was a two-folded prayer. Priests, like pastors today, pray on the behalf of their congregation, asking God to intervene in their lives. So, number one, it is likely that Zechariah prayer, I mean, prayed a prayer of repentance for the sins of his people on the behalf of Israel. He prayed a prayer of confessing. Uh, confession and thanksgiving for the coming of the Messiah and the peace of Jerusalem. Salvation and for the coming kingdom. I have to remind you that Israel was under Roman occupation. So they were looking towards, looking forward to, uh, to the coming Messiah when Israel can be a sovereign nation. They were looking for the Messiah to 
have his kingdom rule upon the earth. The second part of Zechariah's prayer is something that he most likely prayed when he was younger. It's most likely that he prayed for children. He prayed to be a father. Elizabeth could not biologically have children because she was barren and both of them were advanced in their years. They were old in their years. So it is likely that Zechariah abandoned his prayer of having children. On top of that, there lies a superstitious stigma from the Jewish society that stated that if a priest would have married a barren woman, then that priest was cursed by God. So Zechariah and Elizabeth had to carry that burden until his hope came true by the words of the angel. Be not afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. So nonetheless, God answered the prayer, uh, the people's prayer in Zechariah's prayers by the announcing that he was sin, God's prophets. His messenger, his forerunner of Christ, and his name is John. John was the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer and also the people of Israel's prayer. That is, the birth of John the Baptist embodied the prayers of his parents and the redemptive salvation uh, for the people of Israel. The angel said, Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call him John. Imagine the first time when you became a mother or father. You start to pick out the names of your child. I'm going to name my child such and such and such. In fact, my wife and I, we don't have kids, yes, but we already picked out their names. Imagine how ecstatic you were. Now imagine how Zechariah felt when he heard the news that he and Elizabeth was going to be parents in their old age. Many of you are older now. Um, I say this graciously. How would you feel if you found out that your wife was pregnant? (laughs) And expecting to have a child. You will be in unbelief. That would be the natural reaction of that you would have on belief. This is exactly how Zechariah felt because in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It was an unbelief. He couldn't believe the words of the angel. Nevertheless, a shame and burden Elizabeth held onto was now removed. She wanted to have a son to be accepted among, uh, amongst her community. Because you have to visualize or imagine that if a woman in first century society didn't have a child, the community looked upon her in a shameful manner. So Elizabeth 
felt satisfied about becoming a mother in her old age. She said in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. See, our self-fulfillment in today's society is, filled in, uh, is, is wrapped up in our jobs or our families and our hobbies, things that we do on a daily basis, personal ambitions. But Zechariah and Elizabeth's self-fulfillment was to have a child. Zechariah wanted a son so that he could perhaps pass on the priestly office since him and Elizabeth were descendants of priests. It says that in the text that many will rejoice at the birth of John. But I want you to ask yourself this question. Why the name John? Well, the name John means God is gracious. Therefore, by virtue, the angel said to Zechariah, you shall call your son gracious. The meaning of John's name succinctly correlates to Jesus' name. John's names mean God is gracious Jesus' name means God will save his people from their sins. John preached a gospel of grace and repentance, and Jesus preached a gospel of salvation. John preached the baptism of repentance. Jesus preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John was the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah and fulfilled the message of John. It was now that God was acting on the behalf of his people. He was now being gracious towards them. Now, let's take some time to consider why John was to be great. As you can see, In verse 15, it says, For he will be great before the Lord. For he will be great before the Lord. You know, people measure themselves by their social status, gifted abilities, financial wealth, political influences, and how famous they are. In today's In today's society, the meaning of greatness is fluid. You know, Michael Jordan was considered to be one of the greatest basketball players in his time. I'm not really a sports guy, so I would assume that Stephen Curry or LeBron James are one of the two greatest players of our time, in today's time. But John's greatness was not based upon human standards, not by any means of the imagination. He came from a noble priestly home, from an obscure village in Judea, where they weren't as wealthy as people may have put it. John was a humble preacher, He didn't have three-piece suits like most TV evangelists or most prosperity TV evangelists. John's suit was a garment of coat, uh, camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. In that same verse... We learn in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, that John lived in the desert, 
isolated from his own people. John did not show partiality. He treated everyone fairly. He even called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you broad of vipers, calling them snakes, calling out their hypocrisy. He even criticized one of Herod's sons, who married Herodias, which was an incestuous relationship according to the law. So John was great for the right reasons. But the reason that he was considered great is because he was set apart for God. That is the ultimate reason. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. More importantly, John was great because he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Now, this is a stunning proclamation from the angel to Zechariah. Many of us wish our kids and the kids we work with to be filled with the Holy Spirit, especially from their birth. They would have been like John, like little angels. But in today's society, we know the majority of the kids are like little devils. However, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. We know this to be true because when Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant with Jesus, Mary visited Elizabeth, her cousin. And while Elizabeth was pregnant with John, John leaped within Elizabeth's womb, identifying the Messiah. But what does it mean, as you can see in verse uh, verse 15? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb? What does that truly mean? So for this, you have to put on your thinking caps. Apart from Christ, who was filled from filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, because obviously he is God. Everyone is born into this world with a sinful nature, apart from Christ. The sinful nature causes us to rebel against God. It causes us to live in unrighteousness and unholiness. So John had a sinful nature like everyone else who was and will be born into this world. So the meaning that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit is a threefold declaration or a threefold proclamation. One, Being filled with the Holy Spirit means that you are under the direct influence of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the simple, simplest way I can put it. That you are being controlled by the Holy Spirit in comparison to being controlled by some other substance. This is why the angel pronounced to Zechariah that he shall not drink strong drink or drink wine. And Paul said in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Number two, it means that John was set apart for the plans of God. Very quickly, turn to Jeremiah, chapter 1. Verse 5. 
In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, in light of this particular passage, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And this is exactly what God did for John. Point three about this particular phrase. And more importantly, this also means to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth in terms of John, that he was elected unto salvation before he was even born. He was elected unto salvation before he was even born. This is the doctrine of sovereign election or the doctrine of election, in other words. This is what I mean. The normal process of salvation is this. God first regenerates a person, giving them the ability to have faith in him. He then declares a person to be righteous because they believe, to be just, and then he sanctifies them to conform them into the image of his son. In other words, salvation do not start with the individual. It starts with God. So, Again, the normal process of salvation is regeneration, then being justified, and then being sanctified. That is the process of salvation. This is why Scripture says salvation is of the Lord. So the angel pronouncing that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit is a promise to Zechariah and to Elizabeth that he would be saved before he was even born. That was a promise. This is why he would be filled. Now, it says in verse 17, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord and a people prepared. Many of us know the story of Elijah. So John was John, the prophet of Elijah. The answer is no. Even when the Pharisees asked John in the book of Matthew, are you the prophet of Elijah? He said no. So what is Luke is communicating to us? That John will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When you, um, I think it's Second Samuel, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, my Bible students, that the story of Elijah, before he was taken up by God, his, his apprentice, Elijah, asked for a special theme. And what was that? It was to receive the power that Elijah had before he was taken up. That what it was. So in other words, the same type of power, the same same, uh, power that Elijah had was given to Elijah to do and perform the same miracles. And this is similar to what Luke is saying that John, with the same power of Elijah, is going to be transferred to John. And lastly, as I come to a close, 
It says in verse 17 again, The disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make prepared for the Lord a people prepared. Um, Very quickly, turn to Malachi verses 3 and 1. Malachi verses 3 and 1. This is the very last book of the Old Testament. It says in Malachi uh, verse 3 and 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And turn to Malachi verses, I mean, chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and their hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He is speaking of John the Baptist. This is why the Pharisees and Sadducees asked the question, Are you the prophet Elijah? Because they were looking for Elijah to come. But this is speaking of John the Baptist. So, to summarize... To put everything into context, you might ask yourself, how does this apply to me? Why should I care about today, uh, about this particular passage? The point Luke is communicating is that God has divinely intervened in human history. He has divinely intervene in human history. For example, the appearance of the angel to deliver good news to Zechariah was a divine intervention. Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably in their early 70s. And Elizabeth was barren. However, God gave them the ability to have children, which was a divine intervention. Mary's ability to have a child without knowing a man was a divine intervention. John the Baptist, being set apart for the work of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and was the forerunner of Christ so that he can preach a gospel of repentance to the people was a divine intervention. And lastly, the very fact that God has granted salvation to those who believe and adhered to the gospel was and still is a divine intervention. You and I couldn't save ourselves. We needed God to intervene on our behalf, which allowed us to have a saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. Therefore, you, as you and I will live, we will forever be in need of God's interventions. We would need God to intercede on our behalf. Because we cannot do anything within the flesh without being empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. So when you ask the question, where is God? Why is he not intervening? I will ask you this question, that he is. He is intervening on our behalf. 
He is interceding in our lives. It may not appear that he is, but trust me, he is. That is to say, it takes God to reach into reality to intercede on the behalf of those who he loves. And this is the whole point of these verses in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. God has stepped in. God has evaded history. So, as I mentioned before, that between the intertestament period, which is the Old and New Testament, God was silent for 400 years. He wasn't speaking. He didn't send a prophet. Until 400 years later, he sent an angel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist can speak on behalf of God. And that of itself was a divine intervention. Let's pray. Lord, we're believing that you will divinely intercede on our behalf. You will intercede on those who we pray for. You will intercede on those, I mean, our children, co-workers, our loved ones. Because we know that you are speaking in our lives. And you are intervening in our lives as well. So, Lord, I thank you for what you are doing and what you will show us, although that we may not understand presently. I thank you for your son who gave his divinely attributes to step down from his throne, to invade history by becoming incarnated in the flesh, and to die on the behalf of unworthy sinners. That of itself shows us that you have interceded for all of humanity. So Lord, we take that truth and we apply it to our lives and we apply it to the ones we love. I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, will be glorified in our hearts, minds, and souls. In his name, I pray. Amen. What a surprise. I got y'all out five minutes. Well, later. Let's uh, pray over the offering. Lord, I pray that you will